0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Magna Carta is one of the most important and most talked about documents of medieval history. Sealed by King John in 1215, it continues to be relevant 800 years on. And that's the subject for today's podcast, the latest instalment of our Everything You Wanted to Know series. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, put your questions to Professor David Carpenter of King's College London, a leading authority on the Great Charter.
2: David,
3: welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm very well indeed. And perhaps I should mention, of course, my Penguin book about Magna Carta, which came out in 2015 and has already run through a second sort of impression uh, so on. So um, I advise everyone, of course, to to read that.
2: Absolutely. Um, and before we jump into Magna Carta, um, just quickly on, on Henry III. Uh, Henry III, of course, became king in the aftermath of Magna Carta, and uh, you, the first volume of your biography uh, of That King is out now. How's the second volume coming on? Uh, well, of course, the first volume, first of all, Dave,
3: will make an ideal Christmas present for uh, people interested in the period. Um, I'm working on the second volume at the moment. I have written all the narrative chapters, so I have to get it into Yale University Press in September 2021, September of next year. So it should come out in 2022, and I shall then um, crave uh, uh,
2: another one of these podcasts all about it. And we will certainly be coming back to, to you to talk more about Henry the Fair, a fascinating monarch. Um, but anyway, so Magna Carta is the topic for today. Uh, so we've got a bunch of questions to go through, um, and I'm just going to fire them at you and we'll see what we get. So the first question uh, this is a very popular internet search query. What was Magna Carta?
3: Well, the original Magna Carta was a document written on parchment. It was 3,550 words long. It was in Latin, and it was issued by King John at Runnymede on the 15th of June, 1215, and it gave fundamental rights to the kingdom, and it meant that henceforth, if obeyed, monarchy would be subject to the law.
2: Uh, And uh, following that, another very popular search query question is, why was it created? It was created fundamentally
3: to end the tyranny of King John and his predecessors. Tyranny which had become ever so much worse under King John, probably one of the worst kings ever to sit on the English throne. In terms of... uh, In terms of popularity, popular esteem, he was incredibly clever, manipulative, and that's what made his rule so much more dangerous. One of my colleagues, friend John Gillingham, once said King John was a shit, and that's exactly true.
2: Um so there's a lot in Magna Carta are you able to detail the, like the main points the key things we should know that it's trying to uh, trying sure. to get out
3: one of the strengths of Magna Carta was that it was so wide ranging and appealed to many constituencies so there are uh, chapters uh, protecting the rights giving privileges to the barons the church the towns including london knights it overhauled the whole running of law and local government and uh, Above all, it did assert a fundamental principle that the king had to treat people by due lawful process. He couldn't just say, Off with your head, into prison. If he wished, I, I'm going to seize your property. If he wanted to act against you, he had to do so by due process of law. And all of that was enforced in perhaps the most radical revolutionary part of the Charter, which was that 25 barons were set up, empowered to. F- in- empowered to force the king to keep it, if necessary, by seizing his lands and castles. So, in a way, a parallel executive was set up by the charter.
2: One popular internet query is how many copies were created originally and how many survive now. And right. then, well, uh, go okay, go, go, on. no, go for it. No, well, no, In 1215,
3: there were at least thirteen originals of King John's charter. There may well have been more, but we know from documentary evidence that there were thirteen. Of those four survive. One of them is, has been always at Lincoln Cathedral, one always at Salisbury Cathedral. Um, new research, which is I may say is in my book, uh, and one of my you know, discoveries I'm proudest of is the third one went in 1215 to Canterbury Cathedral. It's now in the British Library. Um, and there's a fourth original, also in the British Library, and, and we don't yet know where that went in uh, 1215. Okay, so four originals survive
2: right now uh now we're going to jump into the into the questions from our from our listeners uh readers and uh podcast subscribers and we've got one here from Elaine trahan who as you pointed out is uh, is actually uh, a, a noted literary scholar uh, and uh, she asked do you think each diocesan writing office produced their own copies of magna carta um as perhaps represented by the four extant versions that you've just uh, talked
3: about? well professor trahan is is as well equipped to answer that question as i am and i think new research in uh, in 2015, of which she played a part, showed that it was very likely that both the Salisbury... Cathedral Magna Carta, the original at Salisbury, and the Lincoln Cathedral Magna Carta were written by Episcopal or at least Cathedral scribes. But I don't think that was true of all the originals in 1215 because the Canterbury Magna Carta, though it went to Canterbury, looks to have been written by royal scribes and also the other original in the British Library likewise. So I think the King's scribes wrote some, uh, Episcopal scribes wrote the other. And I think that's but very important in a wider context because it shows that the I, I think King John was very reluctant to send the charter around the kingdom. You know, why should he want p- p- people to know about the noxious concessions he'd had to make? And so I think that's where the church stepped in and it said, right, if you're not going to uh, write up the charter for us, and it takes a whole day to write write up one of them we 'll do it for you we'll su- 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 uh, su- uh, we'll supply the scribes, and also we will preserve the charter in the cathedrals and of course it 's far safer in the cathedrals than as previously people thought had it gone to the sheriffs. Because the sheriffs were the very people under attack in the charter, and they would have just squiggled, uh, shoved the charter into their castle furnaces, and it would have been no more. Whereas in the cathedrals, it's safe, and so I think the discovery that the Canterbury that one of the originals went to Canterbury, we know that. Two originals have always been at cathedrals, Lincoln and Salisbury. I think that does enforce the view, confirm the view, that in 1215 the charter went to the cathedral. So the church plays a very important part, both in producing the charter and in preserving it, and also in proclaiming it, because people knew it was at cathedrals, and so they went to cathedrals to take their own copies and so on.
2: Right, now that leads in nicely to the next question, which is from uh, Roslyn on Twitter. Roslyn, thank you for this question, which was... What was Magna Carta's immediate impact and influence in the 13th century?
3: Right. Well, many historians, including, I may say, the distinguished David Starkey, have claimed that its impact in the 13th century was very small, that it was just gaff it asserted high-sounding principles and had little practical effect. I think new research shows that's quite wrong. And one of the things the Magna Carta project did, indeed, my own task in the Magna Carta project, was to find the copy Made of all the originals. Remember, of course, that Henry III's minority government issued new versions of the Charter in 1216, 1217, and then the final definitive version was in 1225. Well, the question is, how well known were they? Did Magna Carta actually have teeth because people knew what was in it? And I think this new research shows absolutely it did because these originals were copied again and again and again. And I discovered well over 100 copies made of the charters issued between 1215 and 1225. And they weren't just blindly and boringly copied, mindlessly copied. There were often um, little marginal annotations saying what are all the charters about. The There were often little... Uh, little marginal comments comparing and contrasting the different versions. And people people really were studying this, and not just people in monasteries, lawyers, lawyers, lots and lots of legal collections made by lawyers have these copies of Magna Carta with the comments about them. And so that's the fundamental thing about the place of Magna Carta in the 13th century. It was valued, its detail was known. Now, it's not quite the same as how as answering the question directly, did it have an effect? But I think it did have an co- effect. It's perfectly true, contemporaries were constantly saying, oh God, the king is breaking Magna Carta, he's not obeying it. But actually, many key chapters were obeyed. And more generally, its spirit brought about a complete change in the nature of monarchy. Monarchy was now subject to the law. It- and the government of Henry III and Edward I was quite different from the government before 1215 of King John and his predecessors. It was far less aggressive, no longer tyrannical, uh, uh, and it,
2: it, it operated in a far more consensual way. So people were talking about it. It was having an impact, and it and it sounds like it did seep into um, sort of national consciousness. Absolutely right. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Right. uh, Let's take a couple of questions together here. We've got one from Matt Lewis, which was, did John agree to Magna Carta knowing the Pope as England's overlord would never accept it? And I think there's another one which links into this, which was from uh, D. Withers. Uh, Both of these are on Twitter, uh, who asked, did he always intend to ignore it and get it annulled the minute he was free of the barons' clutches? So perhaps we need a little bit of context there as well. Sure.
3: I think the answer to to the second question is no, and it relates to the first one. And I think it was always... the back of John's mind, that he could get the Pope to uh, annul the charter. But on the other hand, I think in the immediate circumstances, in the month or so after Runnymede, he thought, let's give the charter a go. Uh, What it may do, and this was John's aim, is that everyone will lay down their arms, everyone will go home, and they'll never get around to enforcing it. And so John's view was that the charter may become a sort of benign, toothless symbol of good government uh, in which I will be able to once again restore my authority. I won't actually have to obey it. And when John discovered, He got that wrong, that the barons were absolutely determined and absolutely ready to enforce the Charter to the letter and beyond. That was the point he decided to ask the Pope to annul it. But I think for just a few weeks, um, perhaps into July, John was prepared to give the Charter a go, um, but he then decided absolutely not, it hasn't worked and is going to be enforced. and so I'm going to get out of it.
2: Perhaps we should just um, clarify what was the relationship between King John and the Pope prior to Magna right. Carta? Well, being of course, the, the Pope
3: had initially been John's greatest enemy because King John had refused to accept the Pope's candidate as Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton. Um, Langton was an Englishman, but he'd studied in Paris and uh, had become a great professor there. So professors don't swim into John's. Orbit very often. He didn't know this one. And he had, um, you know, thought he'd really essentially um, been uh, lecturing and teaching at the capital city, of Paris, of His greatest Enemy. So John refused to accept Stephen Langton. The Pope imposed the interdict on England, and in the end, um, excommunicated King John. But then John was always wonderful footwork. Very, very clever. And in a critical period in 1213, he changes tack completely. He accepts Stephen Langton. He makes England a papal thief. Later, he takes the cross. And so King John, from being the Pope's greatest enemy, had by 1215, was his greatest friend. Um, the Pope wrote wonderful... Um, Um, mellifluous letters about how this showed the wonderful wisdom of God at transferring uh, a sinful man into a faithful son of the church and so on. And so John was confident that if he needed the Pope's support in uh, quashing the charter, he could always get it. And that indeed turned out to be the case.
2: Right. Uh, next question is from Marla Morris on Twitter. Oh, yes. uh, Hello, Marla. I think I remember her. Ah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and she wants to know, did Magna Carta have any impact on women? Yeah, it certainly did. And there
3: were some very important chapters in the uh, Charter protecting essentially noble women. And uh, so they were uh, 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 perhaps... A, more narrowly, protecting essentially widows, widows. And so there are chapters in the charter saying that widows are, on the death of their husbands, are to receive their lands and inheritances, and perhaps even more, without any kind of payment, and perhaps even more important, they are not to be forced into remarriage. And this chapter, on the whole, was obeyed throughout the 13th century. And although women were pressurised into remarriage, they could resist that with Magna Carta at their back. And so there were large numbers of merry widows enjoying large estates in 13th century England. Uh, On the other hand, so it's a mixed picture, the Charter put women on a lower level than men when making accusations of serious crime. And the, the consequences of those accusations, if made by women, are less than if they are made by men. And so, you know, in
2: that sense, women were not trusted. So it's a
3: mixed
2: picture. That does um, uh, afford an opportunity just to just speak a little bit about who was actually impacted by Magna Carta specifically, because it was it was addressed to it was you know to to address the concerns of of nobles um, specifically, but sure. the actual terminology speaks of of, of free men, right? Sure. So, I think that relates to another question, because I've seen the list in
3: advance, in which I think more or less question, was it just a baronial, selfish baronial document? And, of course, that's often said, and indeed, in uh, in 2015 itself, Lord Sumption uh, gave an eloquent lecture saying, why are we cloaking our defence of human rights and law, which he believed in, in the in the garb of this eight hundred year old document, which was just basically giving privileges to to barons, um, I think that's quite wrong actually, because. Uh, Well, it's a mixed picture. On the one hand, Magna Carta reaches out to a much broader constituency than just the baronial elite. As I've said, there are chapters in favour of the church, London and the towns, the knightly class. The overhaul of local government is going to benefit wide sections of society. But on the other hand, yes, you're absolutely right. The charter is only granted to the free, to free men. And the... That means that a good half of the population are un- who are unfree peasants are not going to benefit it, 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 by name in the Charter at all. They may, in general terms, get benefit from local government officials being less oppressive. But the, the, the liberties are not granted to them. And, of course, the most famous chapter in the Charter of All, which says that no free man is to be outlawed, exiled, deprived of property, or in any way proceeded against, save by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. How does it start? No free man. So, in other words, uh, the unfree are deliberately excluded from that fundamental protection. Now, later, though, it gets better. It, the later history of Magdalene Carter, it becomes more and more inclusive. So, uh, in the the final definitive version of 1225, I think through Archbishop Langton's influence, has a new preamble granting the liberties to everybody. And in the 14th century, that famous clause, no free man, is altered to read, no man of whatever condition. And so, it, it, it embraces everybody. So, the charter, in a way, begins not never as simply an elitist document, but certainly as a document excluding specifically a large section of the population, but
2: gradually reaches out to embrace everybody. Right. Um, Here's a good one from uh, the Warehouse Ghost on Twitter who who wants to know, what's the significance, if any, of John sealing it rather than signing it?
3: Ah, well, the significance is... Simply that all royal documents at this period were authenticated by the the great seal, um, but I think the significance goes beyond that. So the king never signed doc documents. So you know, it's not um, not you know. You can say Magna Carta was signed, but you mean that in just a general sense, not that the king signed it, but that you know he or authenticated. But the way all royal documents were authenticated was not by the royal. Ha- a sign manual, but by the, uh, the the great seal of England. I think that it does have a significance, though, in that the great seal, of course, is a very very impressive looking object. It's This sort of size. It um, and it, on one hand, it show one side. It shows the king sitting enthroned in majesty, crowned, holding the symbols of his office. And on the other side, so that's the majesty of kingship. On the other side, it shows the might of kingship, the military might, because it shows King John um, galloping along on on his horse. So, you know, for that to hang beneath Magna Carta was the strongest possible indication that the king had uh, agreed to it.
2: Right, uh we got one here from Dean Irwin, who is a, a student of medieval Jews. I don't know if you if you know him, but uh yeah. But yeah. Yeah, well, what was the significance of including chapters ten and eleven relating to the Jews and why were they omitted almost immediately? Right. Well, I think the main
3: significance of of that was to restrict the money the king could take from the Jews. And one part of those chapters said that if uh, the a debt owed to the Jews came into the hands of the king, which frequently happens. So the king collected for himself the money which had been owed to a, a, a Jew. Sorry, I ought to. the background, of course, is that the main source of income for Jews is money lending. So the chapter says that if um, a debt owed to a Jew comes into the hands of the king, the king can only take the capital, not the accumulated interest as well. So that's a a very considerable restriction on the amount of money the king can make from Jewish debts. So that was the reason why it was left out of the later versions, because the later versions of the charter watered down some of the key uh, chapters which seemed to encroach on the authority of the king. Fundamentally, the, re- the, the charter is still there. It's, you know, mo- many of its most important chapters survive, but this is one which was, uh, was left out. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But this is where, yes, my life was in danger because standing on the brow of the hill were two policemen with with guns, and they immediately swung towards me uh, with their guns as they saw me emerge from the from from the wood. And
2: um,
3: I mean, it was slightly nerve for a second because I was also carrying a a, a bag, a case. Which I think just has some books in it and some some paper, but of course it might have looked as though I was carrying uh, some sort of explosive device. And um, anyway, I sort of waved frantically at them and sort of tried to indicate I was merely an eccentric professor.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search.
4: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. dot com slash history extra.
2: Now, let's, uh, let's move on to a few questions which tackle sort of the uh, the, the longer history, the longer story of Magna Carta. Um, so taking us away from the 13th century a bit, we've got a couple here, um, which I'm going to put together, uh, which are about America. So History Chappie, who I think is a history teacher and who uh, regularly corresponds with us, so thank you for that, who mm-hmm. wants to know, why is Magna Carta seen as so historically significant by many people in North America? And then also Alexander Norton wants to know, to what extent did Magna Carta lay a foundation for later documents like the US Constitution? Well, I, I, I think those two questions go, uh,
3: are answered together. I mean, Magna Carta was very important for the founding fathers of the American Constitution, uh, both the state constitutions and the federal ones. And if you read them, they frequently echo Magna Carta particularly chapter 39 chapter 40 no one is to be deprived of property outlawed exiled save by lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land that fundamental chapter is echoed in many of the uh, of the but in both the federal and the uh, state constitutions and of course there's a wider background there because the the uh, the founding fathers of America had, of course, had come from England in the 17th century when Magna Carta was very, very big and was enjoying a second life, resisting the tyranny of uh, King Charles. And so, you know, the, the people who went with the uh, King James and King Charles, the people who came from England to America. In the 17th century, were very, very. Uh, they were instilled with Magna Carta and its ideas of lawful government, and that's how you know now resisting the tyranny of King George, um, and thinking about also you know the future of the American Constitution. Uh, we might well think about it today. Um, you know, they wanted a constitution very subjecting rulers very much to the to the rule of law. And that's, of course, exactly what Magna Carta does, and that's why it was, it, you know, at the back of the mind, and sometimes at the forefront of the mind of the people who framed the American constitutions.
2: Right. We've got. A question here, which uh, which might be difficult to answer, because uh, it, you could say that it asks you to opine on uh, on what people think today, which could be a bit difficult. But it's from Farnes Barnes on Twitter, who wants to know why do people think Magna Carta gave everyone freedoms and uphold it as such still when these were only for nobles? So you have well, to talk I about think that I a little answered bit, that. right?
3: I think I answered that question earlier on, in a way, that from the start, Magna Carta was never just for nobles. It reached out to a wide constituency. On the other hand, it certainly did discriminate against a large part of the population, the unfree peasants. But in its later versions, Magna Carta, beginning in 1225, going on into the 14th century, those discriminatory chapters were altered, and the Charter does contain liberties for everybody.
2: Um Right. A uh, couple more which you, you have just touched on, but I think it's worth asking again. Mm. And they're slightly different, I suppose. Uh, I'm going to put them together. There's two questions here. One from Don Dilgan. Uh, Has the mythic and symbolic status of Magna Carta led to an exaggerated sense of its importance? And uh, Neil MacDougall, does Magna Carta deserve the status it gained in the 17th century? Well, I think the the first question in a way answers itself in that the fact
3: that Magna Carta has gained a mythic importance shows it is important because myths and symbols are very, very important throughout history and they are today. And, you know, Magna Carta is still regularly cited in the uh, American courts, in litigation in America, but it's also brought out again and again in current British politics uh, sometimes as a symbol sometimes with regard to its um, uh, specific clauses so when the um when the the last government had schemes to introduce court fees fees so you could bring your uh, your, your if you wanted to bring civil litigation into the king's courts. The law of chief justice um, criticised that on the grounds that it broke the, a fundamental chapter in Magna Carta, still on the statute book today, saying that justice should be free. And it was as a result of that that the government uh, retreated on the whole issue of, of court fees. And so, you know, the power of Magna Carta, both in terms of symbol uh, but also in terms of real sanction, is is shown today in modern British politics. Um, Perhaps I should say that, uh, you know, what chapters are still on the the statute book today? And um, the, the, uh, the chapters always on the statute book have been the chapters of Henry III's Charter of 1225... Not King John's Charter of 1215. Although in fundamentals, they're much the same. The most important omission was the omission of the Security Clause, the 25 barons who are essentially allowed to make war on the Charter if the King breaks it. That goes. But most of the other really important chapters. Survive and today, but they've been gradually repealed over the years. But today, the by far the most important chapters of the Charter are still there. And the the chapters which say no one is to be deprived of property, outlawed, exiled, save by the law, save by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. And secondly, to no one will the uh, king, and that just means now today the government, uh, deny, sell right and justice. deny delay which is a very important point delay or sell right or justice and it was the banning on the selling of justice which fell foul of the Lord Chief Justice when the government wanted to introduce court fees
2: Right now, this this next question is, um, I think, is posed in the context of uh, some things that have been going on with Magna Carta recently, where um, business owners um, in the UK, uh, some some business owners have uh, have basically been saying that uh, Clause sixty one of Magna Carta um, allows them to uh, to um, argue against uh, lockdown measures, um, and, and been posting up Magna Carta on their door, saying that they 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 refuse to accept. that uh, that they need to be closed down. Um, So the the question was from the MacArthur clan is, have we still got the right to lawful rebellion? So where where do you stand on that? Well,
3: I've had some emails about that as well. And uh, alas and alack, as far as Magna Carta is concerned, the answer is no, because Chapter 61, which indeed empowered 25 barons to essentially rebel against the king if he broke Magna Carta, uh, that chapter never made it into any of the subsequent versions of the charter, so it's not there. Not there in the final definitive uh, charter of 1225. So I'm afraid it's never become part of the established law of the land.
2: Um. Now, this one uh, is is a, is a very good question. Uh, this is from the Civil Law, Common Law, Customary Law in Europe project, which I think is a, a research project in St Andrews looking at uh, medieval law. Uh, and asked the question, what is the strangest use or abuse of Magna Carta that you are aware of? Well,
3: I can't even answer that exactly, but will I, what I will say is an anecdote about, what, tw- about 2015, when a series of historians, including myself, went out from the Institute of Historical Research to uh, to Beijing uh, and for a conference at about Magna Carta at Peking University. Somewhat to our surprise, the subject had been suggested by the people at Peking University. And one of the old China hands who came with us, uh, I will come back to the strangest clause. This does get there in the end. One of the old China hands who was with us said that he thought this was... Uh, A move by the then rather reformist foreign minister. Well, Chinese foreign minister. By the time we arrived, things were changing and it was quite clear. The atmosphere was actually really unpleasant, I thought. It was quite clear that the Chinese academics at this conference were very, very wary of saying anything uh, controversial and just wouldn't talk about current politics. And I always remember at one point, very provocatively, uh, the, the discussion had come on to sort of the great leaders and whether leaders sort of influence the course of history. So I said, well, would that apply to Chairman Mao? And it, it, dead, dead silence, um, a, a Chinese chap got up and immediately changed the, the subject. Sorry. So, what were the Chinese delegates going to do? Because they all had to uh, give little papers about um, Magna Carta. And their favourite topic was the chapter in Magna Carta, which abolished fish weirs in the Thames um, and the Medway. <laughs> and the reason for this was it was completely safe. So this was the favourite chapter of the Chinese delegates in, in Magna Carta.
2: Excellent. Uh, I was hoping we'd uh, we'd get a reference to the fishwears in here. Um, uh, it's always always strikes me as an interesting bit of uh, bit of Magna Carta. Right, uh, we've gone through most of the questions. We've got one more here, uh, which um, uh, many many wits, uh, including popular historian uh, Dan Jones, uh, put to me, which was, uh, did she die in vain? Which obviously huh? refers to uh, to the Tony Hancock quote. I, yeah, I, I, no, I, can, I
3: can hear I can hear Tony Hancock's voice. Uh, saying that, uh, perhaps I could uh, reply with um, something which Tony Hancock might have made good use of. In that, um, reading over the years, ever so many essays about Magna Carta, and of course, once one came into the age of the spell checker, it was not uncommon for essays to refer to uh, the Magna Carta, Carta, C-A-R-T-E-R. And uh, in the days when essays came in in hard copy, I would often draw a little cart in the in the margin. But I thought the best effort, and I still to this day don't quite know. Of um, course, it was it, it was actually in an exam script, and I so I had no opportunity of challenging the student about this. But as um, so I think it was probably a joke. But anyway, what the student did was to put it all into English and to talk about the Great Carter, the Great Carter. So um, anyway, I thought that was, uh, it didn't affect the marks one way or the other. Apart from that, talking about the Great Carter rather than Magna Carta, it was a perfectly reasonable uh, essay. So I didn't mark down, it's all anonymous, of course, I didn't mark down the student who had um, Had done this, I I merely had a good laugh. Uh, More seriously, well, I hope Magna Carta has not uh, died in vain. I'm all in favour of current moves to broaden the curriculum so that we understand all the strands of uh, British English history, but I still think that Magna Carta ought to have a central place within it.
2: Right. one one more thing, if you've got time for, but just uh, just thinking uh, myself. Well, actually, I mentioned that I was going to talk to you on uh, on Twitter and uh, and various medieval historians, colleagues and students of yours uh, wanted me to uh, inquire of you uh, what happened at the uh, Windsor celebrations in 2015 uh, for Magna Carta, And uh, apparently um, you got stopped by uh, police with, with machine guns for uh, oh, going well, the wrong this way or something quite... like that.
3: Yeah, no. Well, this was the... I can tell this story. This was the actual anniversary day. It was fifteenth um, uh, of June, twenty fifteen. And uh, indeed, one thing I am quite proud about is that I think more than anybody else, I have vindicated against some opposition, I may say, uh, the fifteenth of June. Twelve fifteen as the proper date of Magna Carta, and um, so at least the people, the queen and everyone else, gathering at Runnymede for the celebrations, eight hundred years later to the day, so the celebrations on the fifteenth of June twenty fifteen could think they were gathering on the the correct date. Anyway, um, as I suppose a Magna Carta pundit, I was asked to go uh, to. Take part in the official jamboree, and if not, meet the Queen, perhaps sort of be introduced, perhaps perhaps the Duke of Edinburgh. But actually, I sort of wasn't sure about this, and so I, I didn't actually. I took an awful long time filling in all the um, security forms, and in the end, when I sort of finally got around to it, that I was too late, so I couldn't go, <laughs> join the official. Um, uh, uh, jamboree. So what I thought I would do as a humble peasant was to make my own way to Runnymede because I, I know the know it well and um join in the sort of popular side of it because it was divided up into the ordinary people and then there was sort of fenced off where all the bands were playing on the queen was and so on. so I thought uh, so what I did was I um I got a taxi from Egham to Runnymede and then I walked up uh, pressing on through um, as you know, trees, woodland, thickets, t- t- onto the hill above Runnymede. And then eventually I emerged out of the, the undergrowth on woodland onto the brow above Runnymede with the intention of walking down to join in the celebrations. But this is where, yes, my life was in danger because standing on the brow of the hill were two policemen with with guns and they immediately swung... Towards me uh, with their guns as they saw me emerge from the from from the wood, and um, I mean it was a slightly nervous for a second because I was also carrying a a, a bag a case um, which I think just has some books in it and some some paper, but of course it did, might have looked as though I was carrying a, 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 some sort of explosive device. And um, anyway, I sort of waved frantically at them and sort of tried to indicate I was merely an eccentric professor. I was actually dressed in a suit, as a matter of fact, so I did look quite respectable. So in the end, I came up to them and I managed to persuade them who I who I was. And um, they uh, at one point, I remember asking a silly question. I said, "How far can those guns shoot?" which they froze at this point and so on but anyway then i did manage to to walk down the, they allowed me to go on and walk down the uh, the the hill uh, to 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 the uh, to the celebrations and um so i survived to to to, to tell the uh, tell the tale Though in the end they were very very nice about it but one of the um One of them did have a parting shot, Uh, not literally a parting shot, (laughs) because he said to me, well, lucky it's us. sir. Some of my colleagues are more trigger happy. So maybe I was lucky to survive to um, tell the tale. So I then walked down and I met Nigel Saul, Nick Vincent, Sophie Ambler
2: and other members of of the Magna Carta team. So it all ended happily. That's an that's an excellent anecdote. But I, I suppose um, I'm just wondering. So I remember five years ago chatting to you about uh, Magna Carta commemorations and anniversary celebrations, things like that. Uh, uh, in uh, in line with your book that you mentioned, we're five years down the track from that uh, from that commemoration. Do you think has our knowledge of Magna Carta moved on much? Was it was that a big moment? Did it help us to understand Magna Carta that anniversary? Well, I
3: think it has moved on. It as a result of the work of, of the Magna Carta project, Nick's, Nick Vincent's work, Elaine uh, Trahan's work. I think we've more understanding now of who produced the Charter, that some of the originals were written by Episcopal scribes. I think thanks to the, the, the knowledge now that one of the four originals went to Canterbury Cathedral, we got a much better knowledge uh, of how the central the cathedrals were in preserving the Charter. Personally, I think also I've argued convincingly that the barons did meet at various and Edmunds, in 1214. And that was where they first plotted the rebellion against King John. That's something often denied. And then I think looking forward, I do think the discovery of all the copies of Magna Carta and the knowledge of how intensively it was studied, how greatly it was valued, in the thirteenth century, brings a new dimension to its knowledge. I ought also to mention the super discovery of Nick Vincent about how Magna Carta was enforced in 1215, and how the uh, the barons of the security clause appointed knights in each county to um, take to supervise the taking of the oath to the twenty five, so that everyone would would obey them. I think that that gives a a, a new link in the, the actual events of, um, of, of 1215. I think there, you know, I'm a great admirer for the work of, of J.C. Holt, Sir James Holt, and his pivotal book on Magna Carta, three editions now. But I do think his narrative of what happened in, uh, in 1214, 1215, needs to be, it has been completely superseded. Uh, and that would be thanks to the work of the Magna Carta project. So I do
2: think Magna Carta studies have been transformed in the last few years. So, now, one last thing to wrap up: um, I've curated and collated these questions from our audience members, and there's some very interesting questions. Thank you very much to everyone who's asked them. I just wonder: um, you, you, obviously, you were asked about Magna Carta a lot, and you talk about it a lot. Were there any questions that you were surprised weren't posed to you, or any things, any any questions that you are regularly asked that uh, you thought might <laughs> have made this list?
3: Do you know, I honestly don't think there are. I can't think of any. I, I think the readers of the BBC History magazine have covered the ground
2: comprehensively and well. Well, thank you very much for your time, Professor David Carpenter. Uh, it's been uh, an excellent introduction and summation of where we uh, have our understanding of, of the Charter now. So uh, thank you very much for your time.
0: That was Professor David Carpenter. The website of the Magna Carta project Which Professor Carpenter mentioned is magna carta research.org.uk, which has a wealth of further interesting material. You can also find some great Magna Carta content and features by Professor Carpenter on our website at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Chris Bryant will be discussing his book, The Glamour Boys.